0: And if you would stand with me as I read, that would be awesome. Jonah chapter 4, it says, starting in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up and the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Father God, this morning as we come to your word, we do pray uh, that it would shape us, God, that you would teach us, that you would show us what you're wanting us to see through it. And more than anything, I pray that we would come face to face once again with Jesus, your Son and see all that he is for us, and may we leave this place with our hearts just panting for him, adoring him. Lord God, would you just open my mouth that the words that I say would be pleasing to you and um, would honor you and be true to your word. Lord God, we we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. Thanks for standing. Uh, Well, if you know me well... Uh, You know that I'm not a huge fan of movies that leave you hanging, all right? Uh, I love it when a story ends by tying up all the loose ends and it brings everything to a conclusion, to all the questions that you might have going on in your head, which if you're anything like me, you're watching a movie, there's a lot of questions going on in your head. So when a movie ends, I want to know, did he get the job he wanted? Did they end up together, right? Did did good defeat evil, right? Is so-and-so gonna be okay? And uh, my wife teases me for this because when a movie ends on a cliffhanger like that, I just seem to look at her and she's like just shaking her head at me, you know? Like, this is crazy because she knows what's going on in my mind, like what happened, like what's happening? And I mean, just last weekend, I, I finally watched Avengers Infinity War, not the new one, the old one. That's how, <laughs> I don't understand the Marvel Universe, people. I'm just telling you, okay? <laughs> and... Uh, I watched this movie, I got to the end. Two and a half hours later, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that's it? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I look at these things and I'm like, why do you do that, you know? Why do you leave us hanging? Which is why when I come to the end of Jonah, the ending is abrupt and I, I don't like it, you know? Uh, that's not my normal reaction to come and read something like Jonah and go, oh yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm wondering what happens to Nineveh, you know? What happens to Jonah? What happens to the cows, you know? What's up with the cattle? And some of you get to the cliffhanging end and you respond with, oh, it's so beautiful, it's such real life, it's so raw, you're a good millennial, you know? You're like, this is great. Uh, But there's a really big reason why there's a cliffhanger at the end of Jonah, which is why I've actually come to love this cliffhanger. I love this one. It's a really big reason. Because where you're left hanging in this book is where your head and your heart are meant to swirl. And the cliffhanger is the point of the entire book. Where you're left hanging is is the point. It's the point that the book is trying to drive home into our hearts. And what we find here is an object lesson in compassion. We find an object lesson in compassion. Uh, The word translated into English, English for us is the word pity. That's what you see God saying in verses 10 through 11, it's pity. But the heart of how this English word pity is being used, it's all about compassion. The word literally means to look on something with compassion. And in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah will use a word for God that we translate as compassion. It's the Hebrew word rehem, which means from the womb. Which the idea of that, this idea of compassion is, is like a parent feels for their hurting child, That's what from the womb means. That's the word Jonah uses to describe God. The image is that a parent watching their child in the hospital in pain, wishing there was something they could do for them. And here at this cliffhanger millennial movie ending, right, Jonah and God are described with the same kind of compassion, but towards very different objects. God is giving Jonah, and he's giving his people Israel, who first got this book, and he's giving us an object lesson that exposes our hearts. It exposes our compassion and whether it's appropriate or if it's displaced. So, let's just walk through this incredible story and how this ends, and then once we walk through it, I just want to step back and kind of point out two things that I think we're meant to see here in this story. So, let's just walk through this chapter beginning here in verse 1. We see in verse 1, that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, that he was angry. Well, what displeased him? What was Jonah angry about? Well, verse 10, if you were here two weeks ago, we looked at verse 10 and we saw that this nation of Nineveh, which is this horrible, evil enemy nation to Jonah and his people, uh, repented and God relented from judging them. God relented of the disaster that he said he was going to do to them, and he didn't do it, is what it says. And so Jonah is exceedingly displeased because God was merciful to Jonah's enemy, to Jonah's enemy. I think this is really helpful to think about just for a second. I mean, we experience anger, if you think about it, you will always experience anger when what you love is attacked. When what you love is threatened, you will experience anger every time. In other words, our anger points back to our hearts and shows us what we love. That's what our anger often does. Just like a ray of light points back to its source, the sun, what I'm angry at points back to the source of what it is that I love, what it is that I don't want to have threatened, what it is that I'm afraid to lose, what it is that I love. See, Jonah then proceeds to lay out the reasoning for why he ran from God's will for his life in the first place. Jonah runs from God not because, I said this earlier in chapter one, Jonah runs from God not because he's afraid of this brutally cruel nation and what they might do to him if he comes and speaks this word of God to them, which is not an easy word. He's not afraid of them. He's afraid of what God will do to them. That's what he's afraid of. He runs, in other words, because of who God is, and that's what he says here. Well, what did Jonah know to be true about God? This is what he lays out for us, starting in verse two. What did Jonah know to be true about God? Well, it's really interesting because Jonah doesn't make up what he thinks to be true about God, which is what a lot of us do. Jonah doesn't go, "Well, what I think God is like is like this," or "I think God is like this." It's not what he does at all. He said he doesn't do that. No, he he clings to Scripture, doesn't he? He steals from the Bible. He he knows the Bible. He knows how God has revealed himself and what is true about himself in his word, and so he pulls from that. I think it's really interesting because the place Jonah pulls from to describe who he knows God to be is Exodus chapter 34, which should be very interesting to us because it's the place in the Bible where God's people have just been delivered from another oppressive nation, tyrannical, evil nation, so to speak, Egypt. God just miraculously delivered them from Egypt. They're now wandering in the wilderness. Moses is taking too long up on the mountain, and so what do they do? They're like, well, let's just build ourselves a God, an idol, right? Let's make a golden calf. And they all bow down, and they worship this golden calf, and they say, here it is. Here's the God who delivered us from our slavery in Egypt. And God looks at this, and he is what? He's angry, right? Like a jealous husband is for his bride, God is jealous for his. And what does Israel deserve? Justice, right? They deserve the full weight of God's righteous anger. But what does God give them in Exodus 34? Mercy, mercy. And after he shows them mercy and he restores them in relationship to him again, what does God reveal to be true about himself? This will be on the screen. This is what Jonah steals from. The Lord, the Lord, which is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let me ask you, does this story in Exodus sound at all familiar to the story in Jonah chapter 3. At all familiar. Ethan's heads nodding. You got it, man. Good job. Yes. Um, yeah, totally. Right? People who deserve the right judgment of God, but God responds with mercy. That's where Jonah pulls from. Do you see? Jonah knows who God is, Jonah knows how God acts, because God has been and acted that way to Israel. God's God. Israel got God's mercy when they deserved God's justice, but somehow Jonah knew this and experienced the benefits of this himself, yet he only wanted it to be true for Israel, not for others, especially his enemies. I mean, this is kind of crazy, maybe, laughable, I don't know. He didn't want the Ninevites to experience God's mercy and grace. He said, I told you so, God, I told you, which is like the worst I told you so ever, isn't it, right? I I told you, God, this is the worst, right? I told you, you were gonna do this. Jonah is mad at God for saving his enemy. They repent of their violence, which, think about that. That is the very thing that made Jonah hate the Ninevites in the first place, was their brutal violence and how it threatened Israel, and they repent of it. And Jonah says, oh, great, right? Like, rolls the eyes kind of thing. I can't believe this, but Jonah... But aren't the Ninevites receiving the same mercy that Jonah received? I mean, aren't the Ninevites just receiving the same mercy that Jonah received? See, God says, this is who I am, and he lives out his name. He's very predictable. He's very predictable. We named our third-born August William, okay? His name means majestic warrior. Whoa, yeah, (laughs) okay? Kid's got some big expectations on his life, right? Navy SEAL is like the only thing you can do, I think, maybe, I don't know. Uh, we just call him Gus, so those expectations are lowered. I mean, if you got the name Gus, you're there's not a, not a lot expected of you if your name's Gus, okay? Um, but could you just imagine if Gus grows up and he is the most cowardly, sheepish man in the world, right? Can you imagine that? We would say that his life and who he is doesn't reflect his name. And a lot of us think this way about names, right? So so we just kind of name people things and you're like, why is that your name? You're like, I don't know, my parents thought it was cool or they liked that singer, or whatever it is, right? But historically, people would name people something for a reason and they would kind of live out that name. And it's actually interesting, people often do live out their names. But God always lives out who he is. He always lives out his name, right? That's not the case with God. God always lives out his name. So in his anger... Jonah knows this. He sees that God is predictable, right? I knew it. I told you so. In his anger, what's his response? Verse 3, oh, Lord, please kill me. It's better to die than to live. Yes, this is dramatic, isn't it? This is a dramatic response. Do you, do you see this, though? He basically gets mad at God for being awesome. Seriously, think about it. He gets mad at God for being awesome. Yeah, you're so gracious, you're so compassionate, you're slow to anger, you're bounding as if as love, all these things, I, you're awesome. He's mad at God for being awesome. I mean, That's like getting mad at somebody for being beautiful and talented and kind or something like that, which maybe you've had a friend like that. I had a friend like that in college, right? He was like the perfect human being and could do everything. Everything he did turned to gold, you know? And once in a while, we would get mad at him and they're like, why are you mad at me? And we're like, because you're awesome. You know, we just get mad at this guy because he's <laughs> like the perfect human being. Right? That's basically why Jonah's mad here. Jonah wants God's amazing grace and compassion for him, but only in the way that he wants to define it and apply it. He's mad. Verse 4, God speaks to Jonah, and he asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? In other words, does that make you feel better? Does your anger make anything better, Jonah? Jonah leaves Nineveh, and he goes east of the city. In verse 5, he makes a booth there for himself. He's seeking shade from the sun. He's seeking physical comfort while he's watching to see what becomes of the city. Then God appoints the second thing that you see in this book. God's appointing things throughout this book. This is the second thing. He appoints a plant, and it miraculously grows overnight, and it comes as a shade over Jonah from the sun, and it comforts him. And so here it is, guys, verse six. The very first time in this entire book that Jonah is happy. But not only is he happy, it says he's exceedingly glad. Why? Why is he exceedingly glad? Because of the plant. Jonah's finally glad because he got some physical comfort. Right? Finally, something to bring peace to my life. Right? I got what I wanted. Then comes dawn, verse 7. God appoints the third thing in this book, a worm that attacks the plant and kills it so it dies. It's kind of sad. Then God appoints the fourth thing in the book, a scorching east wind that makes Jonah feel less comfortable, and then the sun even beats down on him so that he feels faint, and this drives Jonah to say once again, I wish I could just die, kill me, God, that would be better than living. I mean, how exhausting is it to be around Jonah? I mean, it's kind of good no one is, in a way, right? God gives him comfort, God takes it away, Jonah's like, I want to die, right? How exhausting. But God doesn't seem to be exhausted by him does he? Then we come to verses 10 through 11 where God speaks for the lengthiest time in this entire book. God's only said a few things in this whole book. He told Jonah to go twice. He told Jonah, are you angry? Twice. And then he talks here, right? It's only two verses, and what does God do? He points out what he pities and what Jonah pities, And Jonah pities the plant, God gives the plant to Jonah, gladness comes. God takes away the plant, anguish sets in. God gives and takes away the plant as an object lesson for Jonah. It's not really about the plant, God's doing something much bigger than this. And notice what God says to Jonah this time, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He doesn't say, do you do well to be angry about the plant? He says, for the plant. Somehow, Jonah has developed an emotional attachment to this plant, right? Jonah had compassion for the plant. When it died, he was sad it died. He says, do you pity the plant? Jonah, do you even see your heart right now? Can you see it? These people in Nineveh, they don't even know their right hand from their left. That's how darkened their hearts are. It's like a colloquialism, right? It's like saying they don't know which way is up. They're spiritually dead. They're they're like children, right? His compassion is completely misplaced. It's completely misplaced. He's focused on the plant, not the people. It wasn't really hard for me to think of examples of this in my own life, to be honest with you. I mean, just the other morning, um, Gus, the majestic warrior, came downstairs, and uh, once he woke up, and I was really tired and he um, grabbed this huge box of um, Cheerios. It's like the box that contains basically three amounts of one, ba- you know, it's like this enormous, it's like way too big box of Cheerios, basically. And he gets it out of the cupboard and his dream is to be like Zac Efron from uh, High School Musical or something. And so he turns around and he like busts a move and he like throws this box over his head, the thing opens up, Cheerios <laughs> everywhere. Hardwood floor so you can hear it too, just the sound itself too, all the pitter pattering of the Cheerios going all over the place man, I'm exhausted. I look at him. What do you think I said? Hey, buddy, I love you, you know? Um, (laughs) There was a bit of silence, and I said, man, are you kidding me? You know, why why would you do that? You know, I mean, this is my reaction, right? My reaction is frustration, and I I was confronted in that moment. How am I going to respond? What, what am I going to be compassionate towards? Right? This lesson showed me easily amongst a thousand in my life. If you want to think about it, I pitied the Cheerios more than I pitied my son, didn't I? If you think about it, why did I do that? Why? Because of how the Cheerios affected my life. I didn't want to get up. I didn't... I can't just be like, hey, dude, you got to do it. Like, if I told him to clean it up, who knows what the house would look like, right? I, I have to do that now. And I'm like, man, this affects my life in this way. I had compassion towards the Cheerios, which is s- stupid. I didn't have compassion towards the son whom I love, right? My son. See, Jonah had misplaced compassion. He had compassion for the plant, not the people. Why? Because of what the plant gave him. He doesn't love the plant in and of itself. He loves what the plant provides him. See, our despairing reveals where our compassion is placed. Where's God's compassion placed? God pities Nineveh. God pities Nineveh. Who God is drives him to care for other people. Who Jonah is drives him to care for himself. You see in verse 11, and should I not pity, have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are no more in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. The also much cattle sentence is just, sounds like a weird thing, right? But it really just means the creation, the people, but the creation as well. The whole city, that's the idea. Look at this city, Jonah. It's like the size of Eugene, okay? It's, it's filled with people who walk in darkness, but the plant catches your eye. That makes sense, See, this was read aloud. Think about this. This story was read aloud to God's people Israel, read out loud. Back when Israel first got their hands on it. So, they didn't have a printing press. They didn't have a Bible in their backpack, right? They didn't have a cup of coffee and look over a river in their rocking chair having their quiet time with their Bibles, they couldn't do that, right? So back then, they would have to gather in order to hear the Bible. So they would gather as spread out people in synagogues or or maybe in a home, and they would hear this story read aloud, right? So just imagine this, right? Imagine this, the reader finishing this book. Imagine it. Who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle the reader would look around the room, right? Think about the effect this was supposed to have. The, the cliffhanger of the book, think about the effect this would have. As you're, as you're, re- you're hearing this book, maybe for the first time, you're hearing this story as God's people, right? Well, should he not pity them? I mean, the, the laughs probably die down at that point. You see, Israel was eventually taken over by Babylon. Some nation came in, defeated them, and exiled them, which means what nations would do then is they, when they would defeat somebody, they would spread them out all over the place so you couldn't be mobilized to rise up against the, the nation that conquered you. So when Israel's exiled by Babylon, they're spread out everywhere. And they would gather and hear God's word while they're spread out, okay? Okay. So Israel was eventually taken over by Babylon and spread out in exile when the book of Jonah was actually written and given to Israel. So just think about this, okay, this is really important, think about this. They are reading this when they are in the midst of their enemies. They are surrounded by people who have come, who have conquered them, and made them the lowest class of citizens in society. So the laughs and feelings of superiority over Jonah, as they're hearing this read aloud, they're probably like, man, this guy's an idiot, you know? I mean, they would probably dissipate when this was read because it would have had that immediate effect, right? Do I not pity that great city and all those cattle? That's it. The silence would produce this sense in people as they're listening, oh yeah, this is about us. This is about us. Israel was called to be a light to pagan nations, and they are literally surrounded by the nations when they're hearing this. See, Israel is Jonah, Nineveh is Babylon, and God's saying, should I not care? Uh, This, some scholars actually think that Jeremiah the prophet wrote the book of Jonah, and because Jeremiah was a post-exilic prophet, and this will be on the screen, Jeremiah 29, it's probably the one chapter you know about Jeremiah, Uh, it's a really important one though, it says here starting in verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I I highlighted it for you so you could see it, but do you see what it says here? God says, I have sent you into exile. I sent you to Babylon. Israel wasn't taken. That's what people thought. Israel wasn't taken. Israel was sent by God into Babylon. And he says, Build houses, take wives, multiply, seek the welfare of the city, and pray the Lord on its behalf. Israel's probably thinking while they're in exile, Man, we've got to get out of here, right? God doesn't want us to be here. God wouldn't want that, right? God says, Wrong. I sent you to Babylon to learn how to be for Babylon. That's why I sent you there. How to live for the sake of your neighbors. So plant gardens, have kids, this is gonna be a while. Gardens don't come up overnight, not like that plant. Kids don't pop out the next day, thank goodness, right? (laughs) Seek the good of your enemy and their good will be your good. Jonah was sent to Nineveh in the same way Israel was sent to Babylon. God loves your enemies. See, God is so compassionate that it will annoy us sometimes. We want him to hold a grudge against the same people we do, and he doesn't. So if our spirits lack compassion for others, even those that are against us and not for us, then we can immediately know that we are out of touch with the grace of God in our lives. Because there are signs in your life, you know this, there are signs that you're growing up. There are signs that you're maturing you're becoming an adult in Christ, so to speak. Just in regular life, uh, I think one of these circumstances is how you view a nap. I was telling somebody earlier, every Sunday our family has quiet time, which is basically an excuse for me to let us take a nap if we can. (laughs) And uh, our kids have to sit there and read or go to sleep for like an hour and a half or something like that, right? And every week, it's a battle. They're like, I don't want to take a nap. I don't want to take a nap. And I'm like, I get it. I remember when I was a kid and my mom tried to get me to take a nap, right? I didn't want to take a nap. Kids hate naps, Okay, adults, if you're sane, is like, yeah, you know, let's get that, right? Adults want to take a nap. As you mature, as you become an adult, you begin to want to nap, right? In the Christian life, how you interpret compassion signals whether or not you are growing in grace. If you want to know if you're growing, if you're maturing in Christ, a sure-tell sign of that is how you view those who are against you. Those people that aren't for you. Those people that you have a really hard time loving. If there's a little bit more in you today, it's like, yeah, God, be merciful to them. You know you're growing up. So quickly, here's just two things I want us to get from this. Number one, Jonah needs a wake-up call, so sometimes we need a wake-up call, and God is more than willing to give it to us. Notice God sent Jonah a storm, a fish, a revival, a question, the plant, the worm, the wind, then a question. Jonah gets the full spectrum of the ways that God wakes us up. Storms and fish and shade. Sometimes God sends calamity to your life, and you don't want to hear that. And sometimes he sends provision. He sends you shade. And you're like, yes. But he's not playing games with Jonah. He's not playing games with you. He's not being mean to Jonah. And he's not being mean to you. He's waking up Jonah. And he's waking you up too. You see, God's purpose is not to bring shade to your life. Believe it or not. He's waking Jonah up. What's he waking him up to? Well... This is important, but if, if you and I knew Hebrew well, and I don't, but if we did, and we heard this story read aloud for the first time, again, we're in exile, we would quickly see what it is that God is waking Jonah up to. There's a really important word throughout this book, and your Bible is actually making footnotes about it all over the place. If you look at your English Bible, it's saying it all the time. It's be on the screen. There's a Hebrew word, Ra'ah, which means evil, literally just means evil but at different times it's it's translated here disaster or discomfort throughout the book. So just think about this. Chapter one, verse two, go to Nineveh. Their evil, their ra'ah has come up before me. Chapter one, verse seven, God sends a storm and sailors try to figure out what's the source of this ra'ah, this evil. It's Jonah, right? Chapter three, verse eight, the people of Nineveh go, maybe we should turn from our ra'ah, our evil. Chapter three, verse 10, God sees that they turn from their ra'ah, and God turns from ra'ah, right, from the disaster he's going to give to them. Chapter 1, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah's displeased. It was ra'ah to him. That's what it says. Chapter 4, verse 6, the plant comes to do what? Save Jonah from his ra'ah. If you're hearing this, you're going, oh, okay, yeah. Do you see it? Go preach because of their ra'ah. What's the source of this ra'ah? We must repent of our ra'ah. Jonah saw the repentance and it felt like ra'ah. God relents from his ra'ah. Plant comes to relieve Jonah of his ra'ah. Do you see? I hate the ra'ah of Nineveh, so I'm gonna send some ra'ah on the sea because I want them to repent of their ra'ah. Now I'm gonna appoint a plant to save you from your ra'ah. This comes full circle. God giving the shade and taking it away. This is an object lesson. It exposes Jonah's ra'a. It's for Jonah to go, oh, I get it. There's nothing more important to God than to wake you up from your ra'a. That's what God's after. You want to know God loves you? This stuff's happening in your life. That's what he wants to wake you up to. God wants to open your eyes to it, and so he brings things into our lives to open our eyes. This isn't really even about Nineveh. This is about Jonah. This whole story and the way it's written is to call out Jonah for his ra'ah. What is God trying to wake him up to? That's the second thing. That we need to see that Jonah needs to be saved from Jonah. Right? God was saving Jonah from himself because Jonah and Israel, who's hearing this, as they're hearing it read aloud, and I and you, I love myself the most. I pity the Cheerios, you know? That's why Jonah says in verse two, I knew, I knew it. He has theological convictions, for I knew, I know this, and yet he did not want it, he didn't want it to be true. There's a disconnect between his knowledge and what it is that he desires. Right, you see, it's it's not that I don't believe things about God, It's not that I don't believe things about who God is and what he wants. It's that sometimes I don't want those things to be true. So be on the screen. Um, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a little book about Jonah. I recommend it to you. It's called Man Overboard. And in it, he has this quote I thought was helpful. He says, quote, this was a devastating critique of Jonah's spiritual condition, but it raises an issue no less disturbing about our own lives as Christians. Could the same be said about us? Do we care more about the items in our gardens, the produce of our fields, or perhaps the contents of our garage or home than we do about our fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel to them? Do we care more in the last analysis about our own comforts than about the evangelism of the world in our time? The statistics of our giving or praying or going and the cause of Christ throughout the earth provide embarrassing reading to the church. They raise very real questions about whether we have begun to rid ourselves of the Jonas Syndrome. Burke Parsons, who's an editor for a magazine called Table Talk, said, if God answered your prayers, would your neighbor know Christ or would you have lots of stuff? See, Jonah wanted the plant for what it gave him. Do I have the Jonah syndrome? See, Jonah's a story about Jonah, but it's again, it's a story about God, isn't it? about God's patient grace. God shows his slowness to anger over and over again. It's about God's mercy. And Jonah thought it went too far. Which raises the question in my life, I mean, what could God do in my life that would make me think he went too far? And maybe that's the very thing that God is using to wake you up this morning. God sends us storms. He sends fish, plants, worms, wind to wake us up to our ra'ah. But the only thing he sent you that will not just wake you up from your ra'ah, but will transform you, is you seeing that he ultimately sent you something else. He sent you his son. See, Jonah represented Israel, but a way better Israel was sent by God into the world. Jesus, like Jonah, Hebrews tells us, went outside of the city, just like Jonah did. But it was Jonah's hate that drove him outside the city. When we look at the life of Jesus, it was Jesus's compassion that drove him outside of the city. Right? And Jesus, outside of the city, he experienced his greatest discomfort, and it wasn't a lack of shade. Jesus' greatest discomfort that he experienced outside the city was enduring the cross for the nations. It was his compassion that drove him there. And his compassion made a way for you, an enemy of God, to become a child of God. See, Jesus' compassion drove him to save you. If anything seems too far, that's it. That's it right there. See, Jesus is so different than Jonah. Jonah wants to assassinate Nineveh so they can't hurt him and his people anymore. Jesus' compassion drives him towards his enemies in love, knowing that he would be wounded as he did it. It's like the greatest contrast in the world. It actually made me think of the story, I don't know if you're familiar with it, of John Wilkes Booth and his brother Edwin Booth. You guys probably know John Wilkes Booth, famous uh, 19th century um, actor who assassinated our most revered president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, right? Like our hero, you know? He assassinated him. Well, he had a brother, Edwin Booth, who was also an actor. and. Uh, President Lincoln also had a son named Robert Todd Lincoln who was studying at Harvard during the Civil War and he took a train from New York City to Washington during his break, during, during college like, like most of you do. And he was at this train stop in Jersey City. It was an extremely crowded place and he was leaning against the train just to try to avoid all the traffic that was going on, on the platform. And all of a sudden, the train moved and he got whipped down in between the space between the platform and the train. It's like life, he's about to die, basically, okay? And he probably would have been dead if it weren't for this stranger who yanks him out of the hole by his collar. You want to know who that stranger was? It was Edwin Booth, right? He was actually one of the most celebrated actors of the 19th century, and the brother of John Wilkes Booth. And Lincoln, the son, Abraham Lincoln's son, immediately recognized him. It'd, It'd kind of be like you almost dying and Dwayne The Rock Johnson pulling you out, you're like, that's The Rock, you know? <laughs> I'd literally be like, what it is? Uh, he was that famous. You're like, oh my gosh, you saved my life, you know? But this actor, Edwin Booth, had no idea who this guy was. He had no idea who he was, at all. Until months later, he got a letter commending him for his bravery and saving the president's son. The story perfectly illustrates in my mind the difference between Jonah and Jesus. One brother assassinates a Lincoln. The other brother saves a Lincoln. Jonah wants to see the Ninevites come to their end. And Jesus' compassion drives him to save. Jonah's character drove him to want to take life and Jesus' character drove him to give his own. See, Jonah is a book about a good God that loves his people so much that he will not allow you to be centered on yourself. He's going to call you to be on mission, even to your enemies, to show his people that they are no different, that they are not better, that we too are fumbling our way through life not knowing our left hand from our right if it weren't for the grace of God. I want want you to imagine this morning that you have a balloon. It sounds fun, right? And uh, you want to blow it up? You want this thing to float, right? So you fill it up with your air. You just blow it up all big, right? What do you gotta do to keep that thing floating? You gotta keep hitting it, right? You gotta keep hitting the balloon to keep it floating. And you're eventually gonna fail, right? Because we all do. It's not because you're bad at hitting balloons, but we all do. We all fail eventually at keeping the balloon afloat, right? To keeping it in the air. But if it's filled with something else, and we all know what that thing is, if it's filled with something that's not my air, but it's filled with helium, that substance, it'll float. What I'm trying to say is there's a lot of you maybe right now who are thinking, man, yeah, I need to be more compassionate. So I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to do a really good job trying to keep that balloon afloat this week. I wake up every day, I'm going to go, I want to be more compassionate today. I'm to be more compassionate today. i will to be more compassionate today. And you're just trying to blow up this balloon with your own air. The problem is, you're just not that compassionate, are you? Not the problem. I need my balloon filled with a different air, don't I? What if you saw something so beautiful, so otherworldly that it just changed your life? Just kind of like the perfect sunset calms you down or the Grand Canyon makes you feel really small. You don't have to try to do that stuff. It just happens to you, doesn't it? What if you had access to helium? Yeah. And you stopped dwelling on your anger and your pain, but you actually just dwelt on someone who's way more compassionate than you, and you don't just see them being compassionate towards others. Your life is beholding the daily compassion that God has for you. See when you see God's compassion towards you, when you experience the gospel, it's like you're filled with helium. The answer isn't just trying to be more compassionate. The answer is seeing and savoring the compassion of God for you in your life. If you do that, you're going to get rid of the Jonah syndrome, aren't you? Can I call it? You're going to get the Jesus syndrome, right? See with the pity of God. That's what happens. When you see others the way God does, in light of hell, the only difference between us and them is the mercy of God. So, I just want to ask here in ending, I want to ask you to pray something kind of dangerous, okay? I want you to pray and ask God to bring whatever He needs into your life in order to expose your awe. Ask him to show you who Nineveh is. And then ask him to turn your eyes on Jesus and to savor God's compassion in your life. That'll fill you up. That'll fill you up. Father God, this morning we so desperately need your grace in our life. God forgive us for how easily we look at people like Jonah and we go, "Man, that guy's ridiculous." When really, Lord, it's all—we're just like him. And so, Lord, I'm so thankful that you sent us a way better Jonah in Jesus. Not only had some words, not only had a heart of compassion but he sacrificed himself and showed us those words and that heart in action. more may we savor that this morning, may we leave this place with a heart that beats for him and therefore beats for your world. In Christ's name I pray, amen.